Let's, uh, let's pray together, and uh, we'll spend our time around the Word. Father, give us grace now. Give focus to my mind and heart so that uh, I can communicate clearly. Pray for effectiveness, God, for uh, a willing submission and, and the, the clarity of understanding as we study what you have written down for us to learn from. Bless Pastor Rick and his ministry. Pray for much fruit in Texas, here at Mission Road, or all the churches that truthfully proclaim your word. May you build up your church, your bride, so that she is strong and pure and, and brightly shines the truth of, of the Savior to the world around. I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I recently read a story about a 10-year-old boy. His name was Georgie. Georgie asked for a particular present from his grandma for Christmas. He wanted a, a stamp album. And so Georgie relayed that request to his grandma, and his grandma said, yeah, Georgie, I'll, I'll, I'll get that for you. And Christmas rolls around, and there's presents under the tree, and Georgie opens them up, and yet there is no stamp album under the tree. Georgie seems fairly unperturbed by this, and so he opens the rest of his presents and goes about the day. Uh, some friends come over that day and over the next couple days, and as kids are wont to do, you know, they're showing each other the, the, uh, the presents that they got. And Georgie's mom hears him saying interesting things. He, 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 as he's showing them his presents, and he adds this, this phrase and the stamp album that Grandma got me. And his mom asks him, saying, well, Georgie, why are, why are you saying that? The stamp album didn't come. Georgie said, well, Grandma said she's going to get it, and so she's going to get it. If she says it, it is. And his mom walks away and lets it lie, and about a, about a month goes by and still no stamp album. And so Georgie's mom finally comes gently concerned to Georgie and says, Georgie, I'm a little concerned that Grandma may have forgotten. And the little boy says, no, no Mom. If Grandma said it, it is. And he thinks about it for a minute, and he, he says, you know, maybe I should write her a thank you note for the stamp album that she sent. And so he writes a thank you note and sends it off, and a few days later, a reply comes back, and the reply from Grandma says this, my dear Georgie, I have not forgotten my promise to you of an album. I tried to get such a book as you desired, but could not get the exact sort you wanted, so I sent on to New York. That one did not get here until after Christmas, and it still was not right, so I sent for another. And since that one has not come as yet, I'm sending you $3 to go get one in Chicago. Your loving grandma. And of course, the boy's face was quite thrilled as he then looked at his mom and said, see, that's grandma. Grandma said. But it validated the boy's faith that even as he was trusting in something that he couldn't see, grandma was working, and the end came about. The promise was fulfilled. And it's a sweet picture for what we would all admit to be, to be faith, to be emulated. Faith as a child. I think Christ describes it that way purposefully. That trust, that sweetness, faith that doesn't falter. How would you respond in a situation like that? I think... 
I know where, where my heart would be prone to go, but I think a lot of it would even depend on who I was placing my trust in in that situation and their track record in the past and my relationship with that person. But we're talking about faith, and faith is vital to the Christian life. We see it taught, encouraged, exhorted all throughout Scripture, sometimes in ways that are difficult to understand and then to apply, but sometimes in ways that are really pretty easy. Faith is what we're talking about this morning. Faith that's not difficult to understand. This is not an exegetically strenuous passage that we'll look at, but it is significant in its impact and its ramifications and the implications. And so I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. I'm going to read verse 1 as it sets the scene for our passage at hand. It says this, when he had completed, that's Jesus, when he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. So Jesus had just finished preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And the most immediate thing that Luke records as far as Jesus' discourse, when he says he completed his discourse, most immediately what he had just finished was the, the, the discussion of the wise and the foolish builder. And Jesus says, look, there are two kind of people who take my words and then they, they do something with it. The foolish person doesn't heed my words and he's like the person who, who builds his house on sand And when storms come, when the waves come, the house gets knocked down. But then there's the wise person who hears my words and in faith builds his life, builds his house on my words. And it's like the person who builds his house on a rock. And the storms can come and the waves can come and they can crash against it all at once. But that house stands because of the foundation that it's built on. So that's the discourse that Jesus had just finished. The listeners are urged to hear the words of Jesus and to live lives rooted in the faith of who he is and what he said. And so then we see after saying these things, Jesus returns to Capernaum, which is essentially kind of a home base for him. He's lived there in the past. He selected some of his disciples from that general area. He has taught in their synagogue. He has healed people. He has cast out demons Capernaum is a town very familiar with the Savior's sayings and with his deeds. And so Jesus finishes this Sermon on the Mount, and then he goes back to Capernaum, a town that's familiar with him. And Luke, the historian, then shifts into a narrative that I believe he intends to illustrate what Jesus just exhorted in the Sermon on the Mount. I think Luke inserted this, uh, included, not inserted, but included this particular story here Because he wanted to illustrate what a life founded upon faith in the person of Christ looks like, as the Lord himself exhorted. And Luke does that by revealing five facets of a faith that amazes God. A faith that amazes God. And yes, I mean to say that. A faith that amazes God. See, a lot of times when we think of faith... We think of it in terms of strong or weak and effective or ineffective based, based on its impact in our own lives. You know, oh, my faith is so weak, I can't, I just, I can't find, a, find, find the, the diligence or the desire to do such and such or, or overcome this temptation or this sin. Or on the other side, man, my faith is so strong right now, I could tackle anything. 
And that's how we tend to gauge faith. And there's truth in that. But what if I told you that our faith could have an impact on God? What if I told you that our faith, with our faith, we have the possibility of amazing God? He said, no, no, no. God isn't amazed by anything. God is the one who amazes. Well, we're in Luke 7. And we're going to kind of break some, some exegetical and, and preaching rules here, and we're going to skip ahead. And look at verse 9. Luke 7, verse 9 says this. Now, when Jesus heard this, which we'll get to, he marveled at him. He was astonished. Jesus was amazed and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. Jesus, God in the flesh, marvels at a person's faith. That word marvel means to be astonished, amazed. So faith demonstrated in this person's life caused God astonishment. It's not like Jesus didn't know what was going on in the hearts of men or what was going on in the world around him. He was fully aware of all that. But this person's faith caused him astonishment. So when I read that verse, I knew, I want to study this. I want to see what is this kind of faith that causes God to be amazed. I hope you're intrigued by that too and by the possibility of living with that kind of faith. Living in such a way that it provokes amazement, not just from men around us, but even from God himself, from our Savior. So let's look in Luke chapter 7 together and discover those five facets of a faith that amazes God. The first one being, it is a tested faith. We read in verse 2, and a centurion's slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. Now, according to English rules of grammar, the subject of that sentence is the slave. But in the Greek and in the context, the emphasis is put on the fact that there is a centurion who has a slave who is highly beloved and is about to die. And so the centurion is highlighted here and introduced by Luke as the main character of the narrative. We've been introduced to a man who is an officer in the Roman army. Centurions were in charge of about 100 men. They were Gentiles living in the Jewish land and serving as kind of a, kind of a police force for the, the sake of King Herod. And so Luke introduces this centurion into the narrative, and the man has faith, as is going to be revealed, but that faith is being tested. The faith is being stretched. He's in a situation that is, that is assaying his faith, and the reason being he has a slave. And it's not just any servant. It's not just kind of the, uh, hey, you know, if, if, if I lose you, that's fine. I can, get, I can get four more like you. No big deal. This is, this is a slave who the centurion respects, who he cares about, who I think it's valid to even say he considers as precious to him. And this precious slave is sick. He's on the verge of death. The parallel account in Matthew 8 says that he's paralyzed and in great pain. So if you've ever had a dear one, someone who's precious to you, go through great pain, go through something agonizing, be on the verge of death, then you know what the centurion is in the midst of. 
When you have a loved one who's in that kind of a situation, you, you feel helpless, you feel weak, it's difficult. And those situations are tests. They are tests of faith, tests of the centurion's faith, tests of our faith. When we run into those times, specifically in this regard of possibly losing someone precious. And so we see the test, and in the midst of this personal crisis, the faith of the centurion was such that his faith provoked action. It was an active faith. It was a tested faith, and it was an active faith. Read verse 3 together. It says this, when he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. So the centurion, he takes action, and he sends for Jesus. When it says here that he, he, uh, he, he heard about Jesus, I don't think that's saying that the centurion had never heard about Jesus and suddenly the Lord comes back and somebody says, hey, Mr. Centurion, did you know that there's this guy? I don't think that's what it's saying because as I said, Capernaum was well familiar with Jesus and who he is and what he had done. So I feel sure to say that the centurion had awareness of Jesus. Maybe he had seen him work in the past. Maybe he had heard him teach in the past. But for sure, he knew who Jesus was and what he claimed to be and what he had been able to do. So between the time when Jesus had left Capernaum the last time and now he's come back, in that intervening time, the centurion's precious dear slave has become paralyzed in great pain and on the verge of death. And so when Jesus comes back, the centurion hears, hey, Jesus is back. And he goes, oh, that's the man I need. That's who I can turn to. That's the one who I know can make it all right. And so his, his, his active faith provokes him to send for Jesus. And we find that he, he sends some of the community leaders, leaders of the synagogue, and they present his request on his behalf. It's as if he's speaking through these leaders. And, and they say, come, come and save the life of the centurion's slave. See, the, the centurion's awareness of who Jesus was, who he is, what he's done in the past, and what he's capable of doing caused him, in the midst of his crisis, in the midst of his test, to turn to Jesus and cry out for help. And there's no questioning here, are you able to do this? There's no questioning here, Jesus, are you willing to come and do this? Just a plea to come, knowing that Jesus is fully able and fully willing. He sends the Jewish leaders to ask him to come. But what's interesting beyond that is that the synagogue leaders don't stop there. They throw their own two cents into the mix. It says in verse 4, when they came to Jesus... They earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. And so these community leaders, they vouch for the centurion. They, this is unique because of that tension that we're all familiar with that existed between the Gentiles and the Jews. They were not on good terms. The Gentiles were... were um, a, a risk of uncleanliness for the Jews, contact with them, eating with them, being in their, in their house, that, that risked ceremonial uncleanness for the Jews. 
They generally avoided them. They considered them outside of the realm of of God's blessing and relationship. But even beyond that, the presence of a centurion himself in their midst was a constant reminder that we're not in charge here. Even though this is the land that God promised us, these Romans are in charge. See, the centurion and his hundred men, they have the authority in the land. And so all this comes into play with who this Roman is and, and who, who the, the Jewish leaders are. And yet, the centurion has the kind of character and has some sort of relationship with these Jews that, that causes them to be willing to be sent by the centurion. The centurion, it turns out, had so communicated respect and support for the Jewish people that the synagogue leaders are are happy to go to bat for him. And it almost sounds as if they're concerned that Jesus won't consider his Gentile request. It's like they're saying, look, Jesus, we we know he's not a Jew, but he's, he's really pretty great. I mean, how many Gentiles really love our people? This guy does. How many Gentiles really support our religious pursuits and our way of life? This guy does. He's even, even on a large part, solely responsible for, for building our synagogue and, and providing the funding for that. We know he's just a Gentile, but he's worth your time. Look at these things he's done. He's worth your time and effort because of how he relates to us Jews. And they're earnest. They're earnest in their persistent pleas. The centurion's faith was tested by the impending death of his slave. And that test spurred his faith to take action. It was an act of faith. He sent the Jews to ask for Jesus' help. And that help there, that, that, that plea for help is validated as we see Jesus accompanying them to the centurion's house in verse 6. As they go, however, Luke tells us of another interaction that reveals another facet of this faith that amazes God. It's humble faith. It's tested faith. It's active faith. And here we see that it is humble faith. Verse 6 says, Now Jesus started on his way with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. So we see the Gentile status of the centurion is no roadblock for Jesus. And that's not surprising to us, right? We know that ultimately God's plan is for, was for, is for the Jews to be a blessing to the nations. I mean, that's why the bulk of us are here, is because we've been grafted into that blessing that God has brought about through Jesus and the Jewish people. And so it was God's plan all along for, for the, 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 the nations, for the Gentiles, for the non-Jews to be incorporated into a relationship and a faith with him. But as Jesus heads towards the house, indeed, it even says, when he was not far from the house, the centurion sends another contingency to him. Friends, this time... Another group of people sent to represent the centurion to Jesus. What? Who is this guy? Does that seem kind of standoffish? He keeps sending these people, you know, communicating via proxy, which could really very easily be interpreted as, as arrogant or, or proud or, or almost entitled. You know, I'm just going to send for him and he should come. Is that what's in his heart? 
As we look more closely at the message conveyed by his friends, I think we see otherwise. Even just how he starts off the message. He says, Lord. A lot of the Jews would refer to Jesus as rabbi. A term that conveyed respect and an understanding that Jesus had learning. Jesus had something to offer. He had wisdom. But the term here, Lord, conveys an understanding of power and an understanding of authority. To call someone Lord indicates an awareness that there is a hierarchy between the two people and that the one being addressed as Lord is superior. And so we know because of that that centurion is not coming or sending even to Jesus because of pride or entitlement or, or arrogance. Even just in his address of Jesus as Lord, we see his humility. And then he says, do not trouble yourself further, Lord, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. There's the reason for the emissaries. Again, not pride, not arrogance, but humility. He had such a humility of character and of faith that he didn't even consider himself worthy for Jesus to come under his roof. Jesus, the Lord, was too exalted to even come into his house. You got to note how contrary that is to what the Jews just said about the centurion. The Jews are touting his character and his deeds, saying, he is worthy, he's worthy. Look at what he's done. Look at how he relates to us. This guy's worth it. And he did those things, but in the centurion's mind, that doesn't make him worthy. That doesn't make him entitled to Jesus' action on his behalf. That doesn't even make him entitled for Jesus to come into his house, much less exert his healing power to heal the slave. Good deeds and all. The centurion says, I am not worthy. In fact, he's so humble about this that he actually seems concerned about the significance of his request. (sighs) Maybe I'm asking too much. I don't want to be a hassle. I don't want to burden the Lord. Jesus is so great. I'm not worthy for him to exert himself too much. I don't, I don't want to trouble him over me and my concerns. I should probably change my plans. And so now instead of the, the first request of come, come to my house and save my servant, he changes it. He says, look, stop, stop, stop. Don't trouble yourself any further. You don't need to come. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. In the time that it took the Jewish leaders to reach Jesus, to communicate the centurion's message to him, and then to begin back to the house, the faith of the centurion had grown. And it grew to the point that he realized Jesus didn't need to trouble himself. His actual presence wasn't necessary. He believed in Jesus and his power in such a way that he just asks him to simply say the word. You see, the centurion believes in the power of God, and particularly in the power of his spoken word. That same spoken word that spoke all of creation into existence, that same spoken word that exercised demons, that same spoken word that accomplished unheard of healings in his town 
he saw and he acknowledged that power. He said, just say the word. And the result that this man's humble faith requested was healing. He says, say the word and my servant will be healed. It's kind of a funny construction in the Greek. We have, we have um, second person imperatives. Go, do this. Those are imperatives, right? But there's a third person imperative in the Greek. And so while, while it can, it can, you can read this and he will be healed, with a, you can read that with a, almost a sense of hesitancy or a sense of, of question. This third person imperative is more like saying he must be healed. The centurion's faith in Jesus and his power is such that he believes, look, if Jesus speaks the word, then this pain, this paralysis, this impending death that is upon this slave must flee. There is no choice. There is no alternative. That's the kind of power, that's the person of Jesus that the centurion is placing his faith in. His humble faith doesn't require proof of Jesus' willing or even the execution of, of the matter. It's not like he's saying, look, I need to see you come and lay your hand on my servant so that I know you're going to do it. He says, no, just say the word. The centurion knows who Jesus is and knows who he is in relation to Jesus and as such has great lowliness of faith. Indeed, that knowledge and experience is what the centurion goes on to explain as the reason for his confidence. Look in verse 8. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go. And he goes. And to another, come. And he comes. And to my slave, do this. And he does it. This is the reason for the centurion's great confidence and faith. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. The centurion says, look, I'm, I'm under authority too. So there's an authority above me who has vested me with authority, which is why I can command the hundred men under my command. He says, if that's true of me, I see, Jesus, you have been given authority. And the kind of authority that you've been given only comes from God. So God's given Jesus authority, which gives then Jesus authority over everything, right? No holds barred. And so the centurion looks in his own life and says, wow, this is how this works. That must be true for Jesus, but at such an exponentially higher degree that it absolutely lays him low before the person of Jesus. Brings him to a, com a complete state of humility, even in terms of that situation, the idea of authority, how many of you guys can, can relate, okay? Literally, show of hands, how many of you have a boss? Okay, I have a boss. He's out of town this weekend, although Bob and Kathy technically are still my bosses. Oh, so I have a boss, and he has authority over me. And you understand how that works. But then, how many of you have subordinates under you? It could be a child, right? You could be a teacher and they could be students. You could, you could be a, a business owner and have employees. You could be middle management and have people under you. I mean, whatever the case, there is an understanding in our lives and in our worlds of authority. And that's what the centurion has done. He said, look, I see how this plays out and I know that that is exponentially all the truer 
for Jesus and how he relates. And life experiences inform our faith. We see that in other biblical scenarios as well. Think about uh, Jesus' teaching in Matthew 7 where he talks about when you come and you request something of God, and he draws the parallel. He says, look, how many of you guys, by going to your earthly father, if, if you say, dad, 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 can I have a loaf of bread? Is your dad going to give you a snake? No. Hopefully. But Jesus says no. And then he says, so, so how much more is your heavenly father going to give you what you ask for? Because he loves you. So he gives us a situation we can relate to and then draws the parallel to an exponentially truer issue at hand. Same thing in Hebrews 12 with the discipline that God gives. He says, look, you had earthly parents who disciplined you and it was love and it it hurt for a little bit, but it was loving. God is the same way. He's your loving father who disciplines you and it hurts for a little bit, but it is loving and it is good. And so trust in that. Jesus points to the birds of the air. He points to the flowers of the field and he says, look, you you can concretely look at those things and you can see God's provision and his work in the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. How much more then is he going to care for you? Why are you worried about tomorrow? You're familiar with that teaching, right? So these situations of of life and practicality inform our faith and our understanding. They're beautiful parallels because we can grasp them. And we can say, okay, I see how God works. And the centurion did that. These daily realities informed and enlarged his faith and humbled him in the midst of it. So the testing of his faith led to action. He had an active faith. And the action revealed the humility of his faith. All these factors come together in verses 9 and 10 to reveal a fourth facet, which is effective faith. Let's read verse 9. Now, when Jesus heard this, the the updated request of the centurion, he marveled at him. Here's the first effect. God is amazed. We've already touched on a little bit, but we need to dig into it more because really this is the climax of the passage. Jesus marveled at the faith of the centurion. This is the only situation where this word is used uh, of Jesus regarding an individual in a positive way. The only situation. Every other occurrence happens by uh, by people being amazed and astonished at Jesus Or, kind of in a negative side, Jesus being astonished at people's unbelief. But here we see the only situation where Jesus, God, is astonished by a person's belief. Astonished by the level of their faith. This word is used in two ways. Amazed responses to great works accomplished. Flip over to Matthew 8. 27, let's look at an example. Jesus had just stilled the the storm. The disciples wake him up as he's sleeping in the boat. They say, save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, why are you afraid, you men of little faith? And he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea and became perfectly calm. The men were amazed. That's the word. Such a great feat. They had never seen a man command the storm to be still. And they were astonished. And then kind of on the flip side, 
If you look in Mark 6, we see a, a negative example of astonishment. Mark 6, verse 6. Jesus is in Nazareth, and the people are too familiar with him. They take offense at him. He says to them, a prophet's not without honor in his own hometown, uh, except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he, he wondered. He was amazed. He was astonished at their unbelief. So that's astonishment at the lack of a warranted response. And yet here, here Jesus is amazed at the faith of the centurion. Now that lack of, a, of an appropriate response is what Jesus comments on next. When he says, he turns, to the, he turns to the crowd and said to those that were following me, he says, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. The people of Israel should have manifested the kind of faith that the centurion did. Think about Goliath. When Goliath challenged Israel, who would it have made sense, the most, the most obvious answer to challenge Goliath? the greatest warrior in Israel's army. And yet, only a little, only a boy named David, only a little shepherd boy had the faith to go and challenge Goliath, to venture out against the giant. So here, Israel is the practical assumption for who would have had that kind of faith in the Messiah. And yet, I mean, they, they, they had every reason to know and to have faith in Jesus. They had the oracles of God in the Old Testament, they had the temple worship services. They had the, the learned leaders who were, who were supposed to study those Old Testament and, and to be able to, to shepherd the people into an, into an understanding and an expectation of who the Messiah would be. They had the status of chosen people, a relationship with God, and yet Jesus doesn't find such faith with the Israelites. Instead, the little shepherd boy ventures out against Goliath. The answer that you don't expect is that a centurion, a Gentile, has the kind of faith that amazes God. He's seen, he's heard of the person of the Lord, and he's believed in him. There's a word for that in, uh, in that for us, just that we, we cannot simply think that because we tick religious boxes, or we have a particular amount of learning, or we, or we, or we have the right answers at our fingertips or on the tips of our tongues, that we have the right kind of faith. How often we sell short the potential impact and strength of our faith. It's not just about having a good attitude. It's not just about having a good day. It's not just about having, you know, feeling good with God for that time. It's about enduring any and every trial and temptation. Faith is about being able to move mountains. Faith is about amazing God. Raise your estimation of faith and its ramifications and impacts. Don't settle for the mediocre. Pursue and pray for faith that is effective, effective in amazing God and effective in attaining an impact. Let's look at verse 10. It says, when those who have been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Not just recovering health, Jesus' person and power is such that he doesn't do things halfway. It's not a process for him to heal. 
The slave is just healed. And faith is at the core of that. The slave goes from painful paralysis on the verge of death to good health. And you see here the centurion's faith is, is highlighted again. It doesn't even mention that Jesus says the word or does an action or anything. It just says they returned and they found him in good health. So obviously Jesus did the healing, but the centurion's faith is, 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 is highlighted as being so effective in that regard. If you look in Matthew 9, you can see the centrality of faith to all that Jesus did. We don't have time for it now. But blind men are healed because of their faith. A paralyzed man is healed and his sins are forgiven because of faith. The woman who'd had a hemorrhage for, for over a decade, the flow of blood stops. And Jesus says, because of your faith. And then as we read earlier, because of a lack of faith, Jesus does no miracle in Nazareth. So faith, faith is so effective. Faith is so potent and powerful. I'm worried and concerned even for my own heart because sometimes in our days and in our, in our theological circles, it's easy to kind of make an academic matter out of faith and its power and its effects. But there is no greater force than faith as long as it's anchored in the person and the, and the, and the power of Jesus Christ because there is no greater person or power than Jesus Christ. Expect great things from a great God. And you can attain great impact. You can amaze God and you can attain impact. The fifth facet, quickly, is really more of a glow that permeates the entire gem of this faith. And it's the, 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 the Christ-centered faith. And I don't mean to say that, that the centurion had absolute salvific faith in Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, and inter intercession, and all that kind of stuff. I simply mean that the centurion's faith was absolutely, unequivocally, and fully focused on Jesus. Jesus and his power. He sent the Jewish leaders to him with a request for him to come and help simply because he knew of Jesus as the one who had the character and the power to come and help. He could, and he'd done it in the past. Come. He didn't cajole, he didn't bribe, he didn't threaten. He didn't tout himself and his worthiness. He simply appealed to the one whom he knew had the power to save the, slave, the slave's life. And then the second request, as he pondered the Lord's power more, he realized he, he can do even so much more than what I asked originally. He doesn't even have to come. Because Jesus was so capable and because he believed Jesus was so powerful, the centurion's faith was bolstered and the complexity of his request diminished. He says, just say the word. The, the simplicity of the centurion's faith is very much like that of a child. Very much like Georgie, 10-year-old Georgie. He knows who Jesus is and he believes in him. How about us? We know who Jesus is. Jesus is the Son of God, the beloved and only begotten Son. He was sent to this earth to proclaim the good news of salvation for sinners like us. He died on the cross, bearing God's wrath against us as sinners. He rose from the dead and conquered sin, conquered death. He sits at God's hand right now, 
interceding for us. And so if you've repented of your sins and trusted him for your salvation and for your eternal soul, then you know who Jesus is. But do you just know or do you know? Do you know who he is deep in your soul and believe in him? Because this is Jesus who promises to work out all things for our good. This is Jesus who promises to sustain us through trials. This is Jesus who promises that all things are under his control. Care groups are having good conversations right now about what does it mean and look like to trust God. All things are under his control. This is Jesus who promises to build an eternal house for us, who promises that we are safe in his hand for our eternal state. He promises to bring us into heaven to be with him and his father. Do we believe these things? Do we know who Jesus is to such a degree that we are absolutely assured of that? Because of the greatness of who Jesus is, we can have a faith founded in the bedrock of our Savior, a faith that amazes God, a faith that is tested, and a faith that is active, humble, effective, and Christ-centered. So if you feel that that your faith and and even your estimation of faith is, is maybe a little weak, pray. Pursue greater faith. If your faith is less than amazing and falters when, when it encounters resistance and troubles, I would suggest that maybe when we find our faith to be like that, we don't know Jesus as we think we know. So when you find yourself in a weak moment of faith, turn to the Word, turn to the Lord. As Rick likes to say, yes, this is the read your, your Bible more sermon. Because you need to know Jesus. You need to study the Bible so you know your Savior, the one in whom you place your faith. If we're resting our, our daily life now and our eternal life to come on Jesus, don't we want to know who he is? So we can trust in him and have faith in him. Plead with the Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. It's my prayer that God is regularly astonished as he watches us mission rotors, as we live our lives, that faith causes our responses in any situation we encounter to be so radically honoring to the Savior that not only are the people around us taken aback and saying, that is faith. But God himself says, yes, that's faith that reflects my greatness and my character and my power. And that's what we can strive for and that's what we can live out. Because of the one we believe, because of the one we are centered on, because of the one on whom we depend is Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled as we consider these things, humbled by your greatness, humbled by our unworthiness. Grant us greater faith, Lord, that when our faith is tested, we can honor you, we can glorify you, because it's not about us, it's about you reflected and demonstrated and revealed by our faith. You are so great, 
so powerful, so kind, so tender, so merciful, so loving, and so sovereign. Lord, we exalt you in our theology and in our minds. Help us, Father, to exalt you in our lives, in our responses, in our words. May you be honored this day and the week to come. In Jesus' name, amen.